Welcome to episode two with Gary Downing of Leland Originals. Um, this pod, like the one episode one, was recorded back in March of 2018. Um, apologies in advance for any background noise. I met with Gary in a cafe in Waterloo. So there's a few crashes and clangs around. Uh, big thanks to Gary for taking the time uh, to speak with me back in March. Gary's someone that I have admired for many, many years and he's been a great support for me, especially whilst I was going through the ranks in the world of synchronization. Um, he's a very, very uh, learned guy. He's got some amazing experience and knowledge and insights into the world of music publishing and synchronization and music supervision. And that's what we talked about today. We talked about all the various areas of what his career has included, um, paying close attention to his current work. For Leland Originals, the sister company to Abby Leland's music supervision agency, uh, Leland Originals represents songwriters and composers in various spaces of the music industry, be that film, advertising, TV, or even beyond. Um, and it was a great chat, so big thanks to Gary for getting involved, and enough of me. Let's get into it. I guess a lot of what I spend my day to day doing and have done for the last kind of 18 months is what you would do in a startup. So it's everything from helping with the website design, populating the content on that, signing the composers that we work with, all of the biz dev stuff um, with clients, building client database, mailing out to clients client meetings to educate them about what we do, finding new composers, so all of those things. And then from a more kind of admin point of view, it's company finance, it's P&Ls. It's just you as well, you would say? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's other members of the team who dip in and out of it. So Liz, who does our contracts, also helps me out on the business side of things. We have a company accountant that looks after tax returns, but... You know, I was doing all our VAT returns for the first period because it just made sense. So there's a lot of that. You know, I generated and run the PL, I keep a handle on ingoings, outgoings, and have all the various spreadsheets that run on those things. You know, we have a cloud accounting accounting system where our invoices generated, but I'm still the one who generates invoices. I'm the one who invoices. We have a self-billing invoicing system for composers, so they're not having to bill us every month for the work they do. We just pay them and then generate a statement for them. Yep. I do all that. So that is very much what you would imagine a startup company would do. But I guess a lot of the very, very kind of ground-level client-side startup stuff has that foundation has already been laid by Lena Music, having a name, having a brand. That has helped. Absolutely, it's helped. I mean, I think, you know, there's... On both sides, on signing up the composers and also... Yes. I mean, undoubtedly. I mean, the first three composers really were composers who, you know, one of them I knew prior to coming over, the other two I didn't, but they were people that Leland Music had worked with previously. So they came because of Leland Music's name. Um, and I think, you know, we push and pull on the two. So we can use Leland Music. When we have a composer that we are interested in signing, for example what we like to do with the composer before we take on any composer for representation is do some work with them mm -hmm. so that A we can see how they work but also they can see how we operate and they can get to know the way that we because we do operate in a different way to maybe more traditional production music companies who they'll get a briefing from a client yep. they'll send it to 10 composers those 10 composers will do the brief send their tracks over and then they don't hear back they hear back if they've won it or if there's amends to be made if they don't win it, they'll probably hear about it when they see it on telly and someone else has got it. <laughs> we operate much more, and that's not to say they all do that, but we operate much more like a supervision company in the sense that our composers, when we, when A, we very much 
push them as composers as their name as what they've done before so it's not this faceless we'll have some composers do that for you it's we have this composer who yeah. has done this we want them to work on this campaign and then b when they pitch back we'll get them to deliver us their idea usually 24 hours before we're delivering to client we'll then make amends and suggestions and changes and help them and feedback to them before the client even sees it. Okay. And that's twofold. A, I think that helps the composer develop as a composer because they're understanding more what needs to be done. Yeah. B, we stand a much better chance of winning the job if we've helped manipulate it and move it into a place that we feel fits the visual better. What's your expectations mm. of or from your composers, of your composers? Um, I mean, it varies. I think that we sit down with all of them at the very beginning and map that out. Right. And, you know, we're really clear from first conversations that, you know, the, the way that agents have developed in, in the UK particularly is that they... Agents are very much there. They're, they're seen to do your paperwork. They might make some connections for you. Um, they might chuck your hat in the ring for pitches generally speaking they're very very reactive mm -hmm. pretty much every composer I've ever spoken to who's, who's been doing this for a while will say oh my, well my composer doesn't bring me work you know they're there to look over my contract they're there to make sure you know to try and retain rights if we can mm -hmm. um, our role is much more about trying to be as proactive as possible and trying to win the work and using that supervisory kind of attitude to try and win more work with a variety of different clients and so you know from that point of view I'm sure that composers feel like we, we have a better chance of winning jobs yep. and getting them jobs um, but at the same time they're realistic about the fact they know it's about relationships so composers understand particularly within film and TV it's your relationship with the director so we might set that up initially via a producer whoever long term it's them having that connection with the director, which means that that director will go back to them every single time. They won't come back to us, they'll go back to them. Right. Um, so we set that expectation up, you know, we, we don't, and we've had a couple of composers who've come through us who I think assume that the phone's gonna ring every day, you know, or every week. And, you know, those kinds of composers, are, you know, and they're literally just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. And they're not the composers that we're interested in, not because we don't, not because we don't want to be out there hustling and winning them work, but because we want them to have other stuff going on, whether that's artist stuff, whether yeah. that, you know, one of our composers is also a freelance creative director for advertising agencies. So he goes off and he does that stuff, you know. Sometimes they cross over, sometimes two don't cross over, and he's just doing copywriting. Um, you know, two of our composers are artists. One of our composers at the moment is full-time assisting another composer. So she right. is literally general kind of studio dog's body. Okay. So if we've got a project for her, she works on it in the evenings. Um, what we don't want is that composer every week phoning going, is there a job for me yet? Is there a job for me yet? It's not motivating to anybody. say that there's more work now for bespoke composers than there has ever been is that something that the industry is utilizing more yeah I think it definitely is I mean I was with an editor at a fairly newish um, big edit suite yesterday and he said that actually in the last 18 months he's only done one job where they've licensed a track right they might look at licensing a track but they can't afford it is that the, is that the big reason yeah that... um, a lot of the time um, but also that I think Clients and agencies want something that's a bit more crafted to their visuals and their film. And as everything becomes more filmic, and as content generally isn't just the 30-second ad, there's a two-minute version that's sat on YouTube, or there's a longer brand 10-minute short film. They want something that feels more filmic and more crafted. Are you seeing more projects that are online focused? Yeah, hugely. I mean, you know, and and, and that's good and bad. You know, the bad is that the budgets aren't as big. The good is that it's more consistent work and there's more of it, so it's a volume game. So you might, you know, what you'll find... If you can develop that relationship, you'll get that yes. job, then the next one, then the next one, then yeah. the next one, then the next and one. And that's a consistent... Completely, thing. and that's not just within music. I mean, you know, I was speaking to a production company the other day who... Um, they were pulled in originally to, to be a production company on an ad that um, a London agency were making for a, for a brand actually based in Manchester, um, for a supermarket brand. And so they were the production company, created this ad, 
the brand then went directly to the production company and said, actually, we'd really like to engage you to make all of our content. So that's everything from running all of the stuff at our AGMs in terms of the production for our AGMs, the lighting, the music there, yeah. how that looks, to all of our bits of content that push out across social media, as well as our advertising campaigns. So, you know, they might get, you know, instead of getting the big ad campaign, which might be worth, I don't know, 50 grand to them, for example, they might not get that anymore, but they might get 10 bits of film that go out across the year that's worth four grand per piece of film. Yeah. Okay. And it's just that more, con it's just a different way of working rather than everyone pushing towards these big spikes in campaigns. There's just this constant little bits of work. And also it's about looking in different areas. I mean, you know, we've been looking at theme parks, you know, and trying to get music into theme parks. We do quite a lot of stuff in terms of looking at corporate, you know, corp the corporate worlds generally pay quite a lot for, you know, we've done a few um, essentially internal marketing or corporate videos for property companies in Dubai or India. And they want something bespokely crafted, and they'll pay, you know, all right money for it. And it's never stuff that you're going to put on a showreel or, you know, jump up and down about. It's not stuff that maybe a composer is the, a composer's proudest piece of art. But, you know, got to pay the bills. Absolutely got to pay the bills. <laughs> What do you look for in your composers? Um, how many have you got signed up? So we've got, go. so we've got six. So we right. started with three. So we've got three main composers, all quite different. Um, one with a lot of experience in advertising and then a bit of film and TV, um, Tom Hodge. He's just recently scored the Mafia for the BBC. Um, very, very experienced composer, also artist. He's got various kind of artist guises. So this year he's got um, a couple of artist albums coming out with different people. Um, Donna McEvitt, who'd done a lot of fashion work. She was previously in a band called Miranda Sex Garden, who was signed to Mute. And then Michael Russoff, who was um, an ECD at Wyden Kennedy and BBH. And then last year we launched a new composer's roster. So the idea there was that we really want to foster and develop new talent in the kind of composition area. When we call them new composers, they're not new composers. So they're, they're, they're new in the sense that they're new to our clients and they're not household names as much as a media composer is ever a household yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, so for example, Lindsay um, graduated from National Film and Television School in music to pitch composition last year. Right. Um, but she's already composed for like 12 short films. Some as part of her course and some outside of that. So. She's new, but she's not inexperienced. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Woodgate, who's another of the new composers, you know, he is a new composer, and yet he just uh, arranged all of Johnny Greenwood's Phantom Thread score for the live performance by the LCO at the Royal Festival Hall. Right. So he's a, in inverted commas, new composer. He's not a new composer. Yeah. Um, but the idea with that roster is that we'll continue to develop that, and with a very, very big push towards um, a diverse background. Um, roster so we are actively looking for more female composers um, you know just as many different backgrounds as possible not 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 to the detriment of anyone else that we've assigned but just because we think that it's really really important and, and that starts at a much younger level so I think there's just not diverse background composers available it is generally a white male uh, in the music industry exactly <laughs> and that very much feeds through to, come to the composer side of things. And, you know, we're very proud to have two females on our roster. Um, but in terms of, going back to the question, in terms of how we choose composers, I mean, we get sent a lot of stuff. We get a lot of composers contact us. We listen to all of them. We'll try and meet or have Skype conversations with them. Um, if we, you know, if we listen to it and we can hear something in it, they don't necessarily have to have done anything to picture. I was going to say, are you listening for quality music or is it something that you're looking for someone who's self-starting who has done a few short films themselves yeah, has I mean, got a portfolio it, that, that always helps I mean I think having anything to visual really really helps because you instantly know that they can do that thing yeah. you know which we, we is it have to trick. be does it have to be something that 
was done for a project, or could you, or would you take a uh, a portfolio of someone that's just chanced their arm and put their own music to a thing that they found on YouTube? I generally don't like that, and I, and I think you know. I was speaking on a panel in Dublin a couple of weeks ago and the panel was kind of split on that actually from people within within the sync industry people go yeah I really like that I like seeing how it works for me I find it difficult because I think there is an element of you know what it was or generally speaking you know what it was originally and there's this kind of weird thing of are they, do they think that theirs is better than that and it, you know, I find it very hard to divorce it from what the original version that was used is right and I mean, I guess if it's for the purposes of sending stuff to us, I think it's maybe slightly different. I hate it when people put that on their websites. You know, if people have a showreel on their websites and it is other people's ads, other people's films cut to their music, I find that really difficult. Right. Um, I think it's slightly different. What would you suggest for those who don't necessarily have I mean, I think, a visual know, showreel yet? And then I think maybe, you know, if you don't have a visual showreel, don't be afraid of saying that you don't have a visual showreel. I think it's that, you know, I had a composer contact me yesterday, I asked him if he had anything to visual, and he didn't, and he was very honest about that, and that's fine, and I just listened to his music, and you know, and I think it hasn't put me off wanting to see how he does that. It's just a case of, yeah, he's slightly more unproven, yeah. but equally, composing something to someone else's visuals doesn't necessarily make you proven either. No, that's um, fair. So I think it's very much about, you know, we listen to the music. The key thing for us is, you know, whilst there are certain genres that we, I think, would like to have composers in, you know, like we particularly at the moment, I think we feel like we would like a really good electronic producer, composer, um, because we don't really have one of those. We have composers who have elements of those, but we don't have a pure electronic producer-composer. Um, so sometimes it's about genre, but we're very open, and I think you know we're open in terms of if they overlap with other composers we have, that's fine. I think it's about having a, an ability to tell stories within your music. Right. Um, having a filmic quality, regardless of genre. And then that kind of goes hand in hand with the storytelling. You know, and I think that's why maybe we've struggled with the electronic side of things because you find a lot of really, really good electronic producers who uh, have a great sound. They can make great noises. The vibe is fantastic. The production is incredible. Yeah. But the music doesn't do anything. Okay. And when it comes to creating music for a 60-second commercial or a two minute short, it has to storytell and it has to move and change and weave and build and ebb and flow. And I think a lot of the time, that's where electronic producers aren't as adept. Law was always the destination. So my background was always going to be in law. I, um, right back from when, work experience at secondary school um, before when I was doing my GCSE I think we did it at what would have been year 10 now um, we had the usual thing sit in the careers office which at our school was a porter cabin with some terrible leaflets um, and a teacher that smelt of something that you couldn't quite put your finger on um, or wanted to put your finger on no quite um, <laughs> They, uh, they kind of said, oh, you could go and you could work in a leisure centre for your work experience week. And I was like, oh, OK, what would that be doing? And they're like, working in the cafe. So, yeah, I'm all I right, remember, I think my work experience back then was at the environment agency. OK, well, that's quite good. No, oh, no, was it just it picking up rubbish? No, it was in an office. It was oh. data entry and stuff. Oh, I think okay. I went that was on, just... a, on a, a one-site visit. <laughs> And my lasting memory Hot of it, <laughs> my lasting memory of it was being told off for listening to my discman at my desk. Oh my God. Because how dare you? Because yeah, because yeah, you weren't exactly. allowed. And then no, for, on Friday, for my good work yeah. that week, I was allowed to listen to my discman. Oh my God. Well, I, I so I wasn't satisfied with that. So I, I was like, uh, I tell you what, I'm going to arrange my own work experience. So I wrote to the Crown Prosecution Service nice. um, and got a week's work experience essentially as a runner um, for the Crown Prosecution Service at my local magistrate's, uh, my local Crown Court. 
So it was essentially going between the CPS office and the court and being in court and helping the um, helping the various members of the CPS team and the barristers that they had on hand w within their kind of um, with the cases for that week, um, which was great and and you know kind of made me want to do that. It made me see bits of the legal system that I probably shouldn't have seen at the age of you know like 15, 16. But it was great, and I really, really loved that. And so that that kind of became the thing that I'd always uh, I would study law. Um, all of my friends were more performance based, so kind of theatre studies or music. And I always loved music. I was in a band at school. I was the singer in a band at school, so music was always kind of there and something that I absolutely loved um, and had an absolute huge appetite for. So I had my room was kind of slightly strange bedroom my mum and dad were I'm sure very worried about me one wall was a shrine to Bjork one wall was a shrine to Tori Amos and the other wall was a shrine to um, PJ Harvey so it was this kind of strange they were the ladies in your life they were the ladies in my life um, this strange kind of like gothy black and white weird anyway um, and then uh, and then when I went to university to study law so I went to Hull University uh, and I went there because I followed a girl sad to say um but it wasn't necessarily the best legal course. Right. But um, had a very good drama course, and that's what my girlfriend at the time was doing. Um, so I went there, didn't really pursue music at all. Didn't, didn't kind of went to see, they had a really good bands there, they had a really good live scene. We're really near York, really near Sheffield, really near Leeds, near Manchester. So I would drive and see a lot of bands, um, but didn't pursue it myself in any way, shape, or form. But then started to gradually, through my university course, specialise into intellectual property, media law, um, company law. So it was all kind of moving towards that way. that, and that has helped enormously, enormously. What it's meant, well, it meant that my route into music was through a slightly different path to everyone else, because I came in through legal and copyright. And coming in through legal and copyright, what that has meant is that I've got, a f certainly within publishing, a really good grasp of how all the different elements fit together, mm -hmm. rather than I think what you can find sometimes with, certainly in terms of A&R and sync to a certain extent, these are people who've come straight into that world. They don't really understand how a publishing deal works. They don't really understand how the societies link up, how royalties flow through how we then account to people, yeah. um, how the international deals work with affiliate offices around the world, how the societies in other territories work, all of those elements. And I got to see that firsthand from being in copyright and legal to start with, and that's from you know putting a contract together. And I always remember at Warner Chapel fairly early on, I was meeting a band who they were trying to sign. And the A&R guy kind of walked away from this meeting. We were in a pub and the A&R kind of guy walked away and I went over to the bar and kind of said, are you all right? And he was like, you know more than I do about, you know, you can talk to this band more than I can, you know, because a lot of the time what they're used to doing is they put a contract in front of them. You know, they woo the band, they'll take them and they'll go and see them, they'll blow some smoke up their backsides, um, maybe rightly. <laughs> and then, you know, they'll put this contract in front of them. And sometimes the band are like, great, yeah, they just see a figure and that's enough for them. But yeah. other times, you know, more and more, bands and artists wanted to know what that meant. What did these bits of the contract mean? And there are, you know, I think it's probably less now, but this was kind of around 2000 to 2002. There were a lot of A&R people who couldn't tell the people that they were trying to sign what the piece of paper they were putting in front of them actually said or meant, long term. Do you think... The music industry is less like that now. Yes. It's that there's more people who are more clued up just yeah. because the access to that information is more. And I think because the people that they're putting in front of want to know. You know, you know, new artists and composers, generally speaking, want to know where. You know, yes, there's there's some who it's about the. You know, I would argue probably the more pop end of the spectrum who you know it's about the performance, it's about the fame. But I think for a lot of bands and a lot of artists who want to just, or for the people who just want to be musicians, whether that's just behind the scenes composing or session musicians, they want to know, you know, they want to know where the pennies are coming from, and and, and they want to know how long they're tied into this deal, why they should sign this deal. When people can do it themselves and get further on their own now, ever than they can before, yeah. 
if they're going to sign a deal with you that gives you rights to their merchandise, live income, you know, every element of their life, and I think, you know, it's going to get broader than that, because I think what you're going to see is major labels wanting to essentially sign a person for everything that that encapsulates. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to know what they're giving up for that. And so the person putting that piece of paper in front of them has to be more informed and has to have a better idea of what they are going to do for that person than anyone else. You know, it's a massive commitment and I think artists and composers are much savvier to that than maybe they were. Um, And, you know, it's also because, you know, there's less money in the industry now. And I think, you know, that was the other thing. There was a lot of money sloshing around at that time so you could afford to... You know, some of the deals that were signed were insane deals, development deals that were, you know, six figures. It's not a development deal. <laughs> um, but what it meant is that, you know, maybe an artist or a composer wouldn't question those things as much because it didn't really matter. You know, you were getting an enormous amount of money, and you know what? Hey, if it didn't work out, you just got an enormous amount of money. Yeah. And, and I think so there was just generally a feeling of people not maybe not and, and this is a huge generalisation but you know I don't think there was as much care and attention paid to those things and for me coming knowing or how all the bits put together that really helped and then I think on top of that the flip side of that was that I just really loved music and I would go and spend you know when I got my first when I was getting a proper paycheck from my first proper job at Warner Chapel I went and you know spent it all on money at my local record shop you know I'm really lucky I live in in um, in Kingston and you know and, and we've got Bank Book Records you know so it's a great record shop I would go and spend £100 a week on new 7 inches now I find them and I go I don't even remember who this band is you know um, occasionally because I was kind of close to the A&R team they'd be like oh yeah you should buy this there's this new band called the Arctic Monkeys and then you go out and you buy two copies of the 7 inch because you think oh I'm good and then you find it in your loft and it's worth 300 quid um, which is nice um, <laughs> every cloud yeah exactly um <laughs> But because of that, I would basically go round to the A&R team and be knocking on their door, being like, have you heard about this band? Have you heard about this band? Making myself a nuisance on the creative side of things. So that finally they eventually relented and let me move over to kind of from the more admin side of the business to the more creative side of the business. But it enabled me to bring that admin side with me and do all my own contracts, for example. So when we're doing licenses, they wouldn't have to then pass that over to the legal team to go through those contracts, I could look at them. So even now, I'm in a position where I look over our contracts, I can check those. Yes, you know, if it gets to a point where there is a massive point of law that we're arguing over, fine, we'd go to an external lawyer or go to the client's lawyer, but generally speaking, I can take care of most legal paperwork myself. Warner Chapel, yep. Music Sales, Chrysalis, yep. Caroline, not yep. necessarily in that order. <laughs> Those are the four rights owners that you've yes. spent time with? Yes. Three publishers and a label services company? Yep. Where's your preference? Publishing or records? Publishing. Why? Um, I think I, I really like the kind of intricacy of publishing. I, I don't actually, do you know what, it's funny. I, I say that... I don't know if I would feel the same about publishing now. And I mean, you know, we have a publishing company attached to Leland Originals. I think in terms of an established publishing company, I think it's much harder for publishing companies than it was previously. I think I was there at a lucky time. Why? Because I think that, you know, the revenue that they generate from streaming is so minuscule in comparison to what labels have generated. That's going to change though, surely. We're at that tipping point I think it will have to, but I think it will still be a while for it to catch up. and I do think, you know, publishing just feels very saturated as a, as a kind of generally as a market. I think that, but I do, I do really love publishing. Label, I found, um, label side is much harder, <laughs> much, much harder. Well, it was, it's specifically label services. Yes. So it's Caroline yes. Music. That's a label I, services division yeah. of Universal. Yes, it is. Um, and kind of operates at arm's length but it's also kind of within the system at the same time. So they have various label partners, so actual kind of third-party label deals, um, so they'll look after the whole rosters. Um, so that is people like Glassnote, that's people like Communion Records. 
Um, and then they'll have deals with management companies, so they'll be the kind of incubator label for management companies. Then they'll have direct signings of individual artists, so Gaz Coombs, Glass Animals. From working within that area, mm. is that the future of the record industry, the kind of the service companies? There's label services, yeah. there's publishing services yeah. now. I mean, I I've think talked to people that have mentioned that there's management services. Yeah, and I mean, and I kind of did a little bit of that when, when I had my own company, Exclamation Music, which was essentially a freelance sync department that was about on synchronization services. Um, you know, and it's kind of that freelance repping type thing for sync. And, and I think that does work. I think that, you know, because again, it comes back to seeing that artists can do so much more themselves. So what do they need a label for? Well, what they really need a label for is that distribution network, yeah. is that global push. You know, if you want to go out and do you know, PR and you want to do live work internationally, you need that. Um, but do you need them to A&R your record into the ground and, you know, give you some money to start making a record and then two years later they go, oh yeah, the music industry's changed actually, we're not even going to bother putting your record out. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to just do it myself and I'm going to come to you with a finished record and all I want you to do is put it out there. So I think from that perspective, it definitely feels like it's the future. I think it's about artists taking control back. Is that help or hinder the sync industry? Um, the sheer amount of music that is out there, the, the I mean, fact I, that the quality is yeah. not necessarily being as heavily monitored as possibly, it was. Possibly, possibly. I mean, I think, you know, yes, there is that argument. I think the difficulty I found with labour services is that there's no real focus. So what I really liked, for example, about my time at Chrysalis was Chrysalis felt like you knew the kind of artists or bands that would sign to Chrysalis. Right. We had a feel, and that wasn't necessarily genre-based, but it, it was certainly, you built up a brand identity through the kinds of things you would release. Yeah. So, Portishead, Aphex Twin, Niles Barkley, Pendulum, um, Caribou, all sits in a kind of, even though musically different, sits in a similar space. So you could train on that a lot. So for the likes of, you know, Domino Records is the same, Warp Records is the same, yep. Rough Trade was the same. You could trade on that a lot from a sync perspective. Label services is much harder because, you know, one week I was releasing a 50 cent record and then the next week I'm releasing a Slow Club record and the next week we're releasing a Simple Minds record. And, you know, it's all over the show. So it's much harder to create an identity around it because right. it's just releases. The other thing about label services is you, you're not as entrenched with the music early doors. You can't set in place those situations where, or you can, but they're fewer and far between those situations where you can go and you can be playing stuff straight out of the studio to a client, getting them excited about new music that's coming. Because nine times out of 10, you did a deal and you were releasing it two months later. You can't set things up in a way that maybe you would yeah. long term if you're more entrenched with those things. Um, and that was frustrating. Um, you just yeah, you just don't have that lead time. But I think you know, generally speaking as well, your label services is quite functional. Yep. There's not a huge amount of thinking outside the box in terms of ways to promote or market things. They have a very functional job to do. And, and sync within labour services is very much, it's not a guaranteed income stream. It's not exclusive in a lot of the deals. Right. And so they make a call on the amount of money they're going to put into a deal. Like So for example, let's pick a simple mind. They're essentially doing a calculation based on what they know that record is going to sell. And they know with an artist like Simple Minds roughly how many it's going to sell both physically and digitally. Um, what they might make from a special box set of that and they can calculate that fairly accurately on a global basis and therefore the deal that they can offer and the amount of money that they commit towards marketing spend they know what they're going to make out of that deal and so therefore if they then were to land a sink it's a nice little bit of additional income mm -hmm. what that means though is that they're not to achieve that number they know what they need to do and that might just be we're going to do tube advertising we're going to do you know a bit of, you know, there'll be some promo, all the promo will be focused around radio and around Radio 2, for example, you know, so, but they're not going to think outside the box. So there are a few occasions at Caroline where we came up with some really different 
interesting, I thought, creative ideas that both the artists and the management were really, really excited and plugged into, but would have required a little bit of spend and a little bit of change of thinking. They're more of a gamble in terms of, will that pay off? Yep. Will that sell more records? But they're interesting ideas. And at the end of the day, they kind of go, yeah, but we could do two posters and we know that that equates to X number of sales. So they would rather take that easy option. And that goes right down the line to, well, if we put this artist on Jules Holland, even though it costs lots of money <laughs> in terms of getting an artist over from the States or wherever I'm putting them on, we will sell X number of records. Yeah. So we would rather do that where we can guarantee to a certain extent that thing than do something a little bit more interesting. So I think it... But those little bit more interesting things, I think, are the things that make you stand out in a hugely saturated market. You mentioned Exclamation Music mm. a minute back. Mm. How was run it starting up and running your own business as opposed to working for somebody else? I mean, it, it was brilliant fun. <laughs> Um, I left Chrysalis with... Uh, so this was 2008? This was 2008, yeah. So, so around about the time... Chrysalis had become... Yeah, I mean, Chrysalis had become... It, it, you know, it was difficult. At the time, it was really difficult. Chrysalis was about to be sold. We were told that it was being sold to a company. Um, we essentially weren't allowed to sign anything um, in terms of bands. Um, we had a limited number of releases coming out at that point, and with a very small roster, essentially. I mean, Chrysalis at that point was 70,000 copyrights, and we had licensed a lot of the bigger copyrights from that to a lot of different things. So you're, 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 not, you're not running out of things, but if you haven't got new artists coming through, you can't keep going and knocking on people's doors, going, oh, I've got another Blundie song for you. Yeah. Um, it's the one you licensed last year. Um, so the writing was kind of on the wall there, and a guy called Nick Morgan and I, um, who worked within the team with me, who focused was on advertising, we'd kind of come up with this plan B, which was that we would set our own thing up and be essentially a freelance sync team. We'd already, even at Chrysalis, started talking to a few labels that we were the publishers for in terms of a lot of their key artists, so V2 and Cuckoo Vinyl. And essentially, even within Chrysalis, we were kind of repping those masters for them. So that became the model. And at that point, there weren't really sync rep companies. Um, so we were kind of one of the first. So when we left, we set up Exclamation. And I mean, within a month, I think, we were probably looking after, you know, 50,000 copyrights or masters. Wow. You know, and, and we could have had a meeting with a rights holder, be that a manager, be that a small label, be that a bigger publishing company. We could have had a meeting every hour of every day and just taken on more and more and more and more. And so we kind of stopped. We tried to cover off different things. So we took Cooking Vinyl with us, we took V2 with us. We did some deals with a few smaller publishing companies. We did a few deals with a small few labels. But, you know, it was hard. We didn't take retainers. So we were purely on a commission basis. And there was, at the same time, there were a few companies who were doing it, but taking retainers, monthly retainers, on a per artist or per catalog basis, and doing very, very well out of that. But then after a year, those deals would obviously end because they couldn't bring back you know they weren't bringing in the work to justify those returns so we did it on a commission basis we did a couple of really good things both bespoke and um, in terms of licensing um, and then at the same time we got a phone call from Saatchi and Saatchi asking us to come and work on a T-Mobile project for them which I remember was, being in it exactly um, <laughs> so it was the follow up to the Liverpool Street Dance campaign and it was the idea was that they wanted to have a mass karaoke sing-along in Chafalga Square so and the idea originally was that they wanted to have a pool of 25 songs that they would clear 25 songs all different kinds of songs and then depending on the weather depending on what happened they were playing these songs and everyone would sing them so it was a huge kind of rights situation and we figured that because they wanted massively well-known copyrights, this didn't conflict with our representation side of the business because they weren't. It's not like we were double dipping. The tracks they were looking to license were things that we didn't represent in any way, shape, or form. So we took the project on. It was kind of like a flat project fee. Um, found them probably a hundred tracks. They then whittled that down. We then went out and cleared those tracks, and then eventually that it was 
think there were 10 tracks in total that we filmed over the hour. Um, 14,000 people turned up. The day before, they'd sent a tweet, they'd sent a, hadn't sent a tweet out, Twitter wasn't even really a thing, then they'd sent a text out saying to T-Mobile customers, being like, we're doing this thing at Trafalgar Square, and then the police got wind of it, and were like, we're gonna shut it down, because too many people are gonna turn up. But as it was, 14,000 people turned up, Pink was in the audience, and she pops up and sings the and then the whole thing finished with Hey Jude by the Beatles. And then the biggest, um, the biggest kind of headache was that they then cut, cut that, cut all of those performances into, I think what was a two minute ad, that then ran the following night, but then across Europe, different territories took different songs. So some would only take three songs, some would only take one song. Yeah. Um, and with the Beatles, whilst we cleared it and it was all good, we had to still run the final footage past them before it could be approved. So you're kind of on the fly sending them these edits, hoping, praying that they approve it. Um, but yeah, so it was great. And then we did that and then we did another T-Mobile ad for them which you were in again <laughs> uh, Josh's band and then we did the last one we did with them was uh, at Terminal 5 the airport where people coming back from Terminal 5 just after it opened at Heathrow yeah. and as they came through we played different songs so each one kind of came with these challenges so we kind of ended up becoming this like music consultant project management team yeah. and it was still just Nick and I um, working out of an office and so on would you do it again? Would you go into business for yourself again? With the current climate, you know, ten, a decade? Yes. On, with the changes <laughs> no. that have happened in economics and the music business yeah. and all that sort of stuff, is now a good time? I mean, I to, guess I kind of have done it again to a certain extent. I mean, yes, I have the I mean, backup of... We talked you know, earlier on about the fact that you've, yeah. you've, you've started up a company yes. with a brand. Yes, yeah. Behind it. Yes. It's a different proposition. I think if, if it was going up, going in and setting up a music consultancy slash sync rep company again from scratch, no. Is that just because the, the, there's just lots um, more of them? You're yeah, there's lots more of them. Uh, yeah, and I think I don't know how you get heard. I think there has been, because there's so many of these companies now, you will have, I mean, and it's starting to happen even towards the end of Exclamation, where we would have artists or managers come to us saying, oh, I'm published by Universal and my record goes through PS and I've got a non-exclusive sync deal with Sunday Best, but I also want someone else pushing sync. And you're kind of going, you're using sync rep as a beating stick, essentially. And then you just get into the thing of like, well, how do you prove procurement? You know, you've got six different people who supposedly represent this piece of music. And I know from a from a client side, from when I was at Fruit, a piece of music lands on your desk. If it's if you've had the same piece of music from four different people, you instantly go, "Well, this feels like a rights nightmare. Who do I go to to clear it? I don't know. In the bin, not going to even try." So yeah. that was beginning to happen. And I think so. That's one of the kind of key factors. I think. I mean, I think what I will say is we learn a lot from being at Fruit. I kind of wish I'd done the other way around of Fruit to Exclamation. Right. Because I think that we undervalued the service we were providing at Exclamation Music on when we were doing the consultancy projects. Right. And when I saw how Fruit charged those, and the last T-Mobile ad, the airport one, we did through Fruit, and we agreed the same fees as we had previously, but when they did their budget analysis, they would have charged something like four times as much money. Right. And obviously the difference there is Fruit will do it direct to brand, and the brand will pay it, whereas we were doing it to the agency, and the agency go, no way we're paying that, because we then pass that cost on. Yeah. Um, so I think we would have structured the business differently had we have done it the other way around, and maybe that would have made it more successful and afforded us a longer time as an independent company. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, whilst I am, you know, whilst this is a new company and I have gone into a new business, it's backed by Abby, it's backed by Leela Music. There is, you know, there is, as you say, a brand behind it which makes it easier than just going in afresh. You know, and I know a lot of people who've gone in afresh to things within the sync industry and, you know, it's, it's tough, it's hard. Everyone's had to up their game. All the labels and publishers now are fiercely competitive in this area of the business. Um, and I think you have to diversify and do other things. And I think, you know, that's kind of, even within Leland Originals, that's what we've tried to do. I mean, you know, yes, we're a composer agent specialising in bespoke media for, uh, bespoke music for media. A lot of what we're doing with a couple of our composers, one of them is basically becoming a label. You know, we've set up a label imprint to put their music out. 
we're essentially managing them and that's everything from helping them with live setups helping them with the recording and then putting the records out with one of the composers they want to move more into songwriting as well so that's been about speaking to labels and publishers finding artist opportunities for them to write artists now that's not what a composer agent does no um, it's you know yeah. much more than that From a, from a purely sync point of view, the majors haven't altered hugely. Their teams may have got bigger. They're more aggressive in their approach, and they're more aggressive in their approach of going direct to clients and cutting out middlemen. But I don't think that they have changed radically in their approach. There's more pressure on them internally. Their budgets have gone up hugely. Um, but they still operate in a very similar way, and you'd be amazed at how some of those majors operate. And, the fact that you know it's still not a joke to say that you'll inquire about a piece of music and they will not phone you back for a long time and you know it's the second or third phone call that you actually get a response to it. Um, which is kind of incredible now that anyone is waiting that long for business um, I suppose the difference is that there are a lot more companies doing it there are a lot you know all of the smaller companies are much more aggressive and have sync teams where they didn't have sync teams and they would use three nights reps um, the labels I mean, the labels still have the might and the power and the money. And I think, you know, brand partnerships obviously become such a massive thing. And I think, you know, you see the money and, and the numbers of people in those teams. It's a very different thing to sync. You know, when I was at Caroline, I was technically sync and brand partnerships. For me, they're completely, vastly different things. Mm -hmm. um, brand partnerships is much more sales-based. Um, you know, it's a different kind of person. Yeah. It's still relationships-based, but it's a different kind of person that is yeah. brand partnerships-based. Because you're dealing at brand level you have to understand what they want and that's well, it's something that thing. traditionally was dealt with by a manager absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and when i was at 360 group yeah, the guys working the with the, the guys yeah. that were working with calvin harris and dead mouse is that it was the yeah. the direct manager was looking at the endorsement deals the absolutely. sponsorship deals and that's kind of a an arm of brand partnerships well i way. kind of find it weird that publishing companies have brand partnership people you know technically speaking you don't have the rights to be able to activate brand partnerships. When you're just a publisher, you don't have those rights. You know, it, it, and a lot of the time, you're right, the reason why it fell to the manager was because the manager was the one that held name image likeness live to a certain extent. So yes, you might need to get the label in on board to clear music rights yeah. and things, but I guess as things have evolved, and I think this is where the music industry and where label deals will change. And I think that, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, but I do think that there is this move towards certainly with the more commercial pop artists labels are seeing them as just a commodity in and of themselves so it's not just their musical output and their musical content you know when you look at the moves of people like warners and fire pit which is their kind of content brand division that they are creating content the move of that and they've, they've hired two of the um, they've hired two of the head creators from four creative gone over there and the idea with that is to create content around their artists. Yeah. And then you create that content and then you sell it to a brand. So, ridiculous example, but you know, it will be like if Ed Sheeran suddenly turned around and says, I really, really like helicopters. <laughs> right? And they go, great, let's create a series of Ed Sheeran flying over his favorite cities in helicopters. Right, so then they create that piece of branding content and then sell so that to someone. But technically speaking, <laughs> so what does that have to do with him and his music? Nothing. So will you see a situation, which, which is kind of a lot more scary in a way, of labels or as they're just becoming entertainment companies signing the person for everything about them? Do you know something that we don't? Is there going to be Ed Sheeran and his helicopters? <laughs> coming soon to no, a YouTube channel boats. near you. It's right. speedboats. He loves the speedboat. <laughs> and he loves um, to go on the banana boat in the back. And the last <laughs> last thing, yeah. what if you had to give one piece of advice mm -hmm. to upcoming songwriters mm -hmm. and upcoming and those who want to work in the music industry, yeah. specifically in sync, yeah. Yeah. Uh, due to your background, yeah. what would be that one bit of advice? And it can be one bit to each of them, because it might be different. But what would I, be the I one mean, thing? I think, you know, the key thing is patience. I think, you know, within sync, it, it's, it's all about patience. And I think, you know, you, you have to just, you have to know when to push and pull. And I think, you know, the things that annoy everyone in terms of 
um, being in a sync department, client side, supervision side, wherever it is, is you know those people hassling you, expecting things now, this instantaneous thing. And I think you know that's why I found coming back to the labels thing. That's why I found labels difficult because it's this instant reaction. They've got a track, they want it on radio now. You know, and sync isn't like that. It's about patience, it's about time, it's about yep. allowing songs to sit. Um, so I think you need that, and you need that in terms of getting into it as an industry you need that when you're making the music that it's not going to be picked up never assume that you know you can't write a song about jeans and expect a jeans company to <laughs> suddenly license it um, be nice to people you know it, it sounds ridiculous but it sounds really like hey man no know, but I would, I'd say that it's something that I say to a lot of people don't be a dick yeah totally it's like you know the number of arseholes that are in the music industry already I mean you know <laughs> is extraordinary the reason why people hate the music you know if you go to uh, there's a pub um, near the Grosvenor House Hotel um, which is basically taken over every year after the Ivan Novello Awards by the music industry and I know, know it well you know that pub well and I know that pub well and you know if you turn up there at four or five o'clock on that day you will see the reason why people hate the music industry because it is just full of absolute morons off their faces thinking that they're the most important people in the world and actually I think that breed of music person is dying off and I think yeah, you yeah. know people getting out it's hard work it's about creativity it's about ideas it's about dedication but it's about being nice you know the people that I you know there's a guy that I think you and I both know who, who has his own music production company based up in Sheffield you know and the reason why I met him and the reason why I introduced him to loads of people contact wise that I knew was just because he was a really really nice guy and you know and he's yes it mattered that he could do what he said he could do on the music side of things but he was just a really really nice guy and he's kind of essentially built a business by the fact that he's a really nice guy and people really like him so I introduced him to five people they've all introduced him to five people he's now got a network Amazing. And I think that's the perfect way to end. <laughs> Cheers, Thank man. You. Thank you Cheers, very much. Danny. That was Gary Downing. Again, as I mentioned before the show, massive, massive thanks to Gary for getting involved. Um, if you're interested in learning a bit more about Leland Originals, track them down. It's lelandoriginals.com or on Instagram with Leland Originals. Their songwriters often take over their Instagram account. So if you're interested in a bit of an insight to some of the songwriters, then do check out the Instagram account. If you want to follow Gary himself on Twitter, that's at GDowners with a Z at the end. Um, but again, massive thank you to Gary for getting involved in the podcast. Uh, Leland Originals are an amazing company and the songwriters on there are doing some amazing, amazing work. So it's a real privilege to, to have Gary on the show and sit down with him. As mentioned before, please do get in touch with the podcast at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com. If you've got any questions for any of the guests, do fire them across. I want to put those questions to them and put together something for the end of the series. So do get in touch. That's behindthebusinesspod.com. See you next week. Bye.